Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. Happy Friday, everyone. Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here once again with the rundown with Robin Rich, where we take you in the happy hour every Friday by running through the week that was in the mortgage industry. And uh, so, so Rich, in, in other words, we're standing between people on this crowd and happy hour. Like Andrews, Andrews is already lashing into me. Aloha, I would say Andrews. happy hour starting early for maybe a lot in our industry uh, as of late, um, not just on Fridays, but so. <clears throat> Mr. Zandy. Good to see you, Mark. How's it going? Mark is muted. Very good. I'm very good. Good to see you guys. Mark, where do you call home? I uh, live in suburban Philly. This is, oh, uh, okay. this is where I grew up. My kids uh, say I've sheltered in place all my life. So, okay, we, we'll we'll refrain from any James Harden questions. Then that's uh, questions on the economy might be easier. You know, I've been I haven't been following. What's uh, what's the story with him? Is he? Um, it's just that yeah, he's just you know the mercurial uh, yeah. star that. that uh, can never seem to kind of get it all together, but uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, okay. happy Friday, everyone. Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here once again with the rundown with Rob and Rich, where we take you into the weekend by running through the week that it was in the mortgage industry. And uh, as always, pleased to be joined by esteemed colleague and co-host who is somewhere in the Pacific Islands, evidently, uh, Rob Chrisman. Rob, good to see you and your background. I'm completely envious. This is a, a fake background, Rich. Uh, but before you introduce my uh, my son, I will say that the I am in Fiji, which I did a little comparison before the show, and I know we want to get to Mark as soon as possible. But you think, oh, Fiji is far away. Fiji, if you were to travel, Rich, from your hometown of Twinsburg near Cleveland to Salt Lake City. That is the same distance as Fiji is to New Zealand to put, hmm. keep things in perspective. Okay. So Fiji, Fiji is down near New Zealand and it's very, uh, it's near the equator. It's very temperate and um, having a good time here. It's nice. Excellent. Where else are you going to get information like that? So Rob, thanks right. for the update. And uh, Rob's irresponsible millennial son, Robbie, once again, checking in, uh, not from a casino. This what are you in like suspended in midair or what? Uh... I think fake backgrounds run in the Crispin family, like father, <laughs> like son. <laughs> uh, we're both looking at the Pacific Ocean, Rich. We both have the Pacific Ocean in the background. It's very interesting. As always, I have my my boring Twinsburg, Ohio office background. But uh, see, like uh, the Christmas lights, when do the Christmas lights go up? Well, it's almost Christmas season again, so it's you know that's the beauty of keeping them up all year. It's you don't gotta you don't gotta put them up uh, in in the fall. So, and this week a real expert uh, on the show. We are really really thrilled this week to have a guy that is an advisor to policymakers, really influential source of uh, economic analysis. Um, testified before Congress. He's constantly on the cable news programs. The chief economist for Moody's Analytics. Mark Zandi. Mark, really, really happy you're able to join us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's good to be with you guys. I wish I were in Fiji. I've never been to Fiji. It sounds like looks like a place one ought to visit, though. It looks great. Very nice. People, people are very nice. The um, 
it's, 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 a, it's a good place to good visit. Place. Yeah. We've been talking so much about the broader economy on this show. Obviously, inflation, the broader economy's impact on housing and Fed action and mortgage rates is driving really everything with our business. So, uh, you know, wanted to uh, reach out to Mark, good friend of uh, TMC, to get his take on uh, what's going on with the U.S. economy, the housing market within it, and uh, provide some uh, insight uh, to our members. So, Mark, thanks again for joining us and really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, again, thanks for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Beautiful. Let's get into it. Uh, as everybody should know by now, uh, strive for interactivity with the show. I already see some stuff coming in the chat, Q&A. If you're listening on podcast where the majority of you listen, join our live broadcast Fridays at 3 on Zoom and go to mortgagecollaborative.com to register live for that. Rob, uh, so this week, kind of a crazy week just for the markets in, <clears throat> in general. Um this morning, the Fed, the CEO of FedEx came out and predicted a, a global recession, uh, obviously freaked out the markets. Uh, FedEx missed bad on earnings. They withdraw their, their full-year guidance. They announced all these cost-cutting, and the CEO spoke to what he called a significantly worsened global economy. This, of course, coming off the heels off Tuesday's hotter-than-expected inflation data. And you can kind of predict, you know, what has happened with the market since stock markets just totally gone in the tank. Bonds have sold off off the inflation data kind of sideways today. But uh, your your take on, on the current market environment. The last time I checked here in, in Fiji, a, a recession leads to lower rates. Is that the case in the United States, Rich? I don't know. The uh, you have to be careful what you wish for. And I think a lot of loan officers who write to me, they'll say, they'll ask, you know, when are rates going back down? When are rates going to go back down? And I remind them what is going to cause rates to go back down, Mr. or Miss Loan Officer. Do you really want a, a recession to push rates down? Because then you start running into qualification issues, you start running into delinquency issues, possibly, even with all the equity that homeowners have out there. But I think the and Mark, I'm sure you're going to get into this. The the psychology has has certainly changed in the last several months. And at some point, anyone predicting a recession would be sorry about the, the bird, the, the fake uh, tiki room bird noise here in the background. But uh, uh, you know, at some point, everybody who predicts an expansion is going to be right. Everybody who predicts a recession is going to be correct. And right now, the psychology is such that. It, it seems like it's almost uh, self-fulfilling in terms of, gee, if there's going to be a recession, we better do this. We better do that. We better not, you know, we better start to hunker down ahead of holidays. You know, summer summer vacation season is over with for the most part. So it's time just to, just to maybe not spend as much money. And so it almost feeds upon itself. But I mean, that leads right into to Mark and what you're seeing out there in terms of the the overall economy is that is that what you're seeing, or do I have it all wrong? Uh, well, no, the economy is it depends on which part of the elephant you're touching, right? I mean, uh, if you're looking at the job market, things are rip roaring. We're creating lots of jobs. Uh, you know, 300k plus in August, 400k on average over the past six months, 500k on average over the past 12 months. And just for context, we need about 100k to absorb the, the trend growth in the labor force and keep unemployment from rising. So you know, unemployment's falling. Uh, layoffs are at record lows. There are some high-profile layoff announcements. Uh, I saw Goldman, Tesla, some tech companies, but 
In aggregate, they're about as low as they've ever been, record number of open job positions. So from that prism, from that part of the elephant, it feels pretty good, at least at this point. But obviously, the problem is inflation. Uh, it's very high. It's got to come in, and the Fed's on the war path and raising rates, and will continue to raise rates until inflation comes in. And in that environment, you know, recession risks are high, uh, and uh, the probability of going into recession at some point over the next 12, 18 months are, you know, are considerable. Right now, yeah, it would, it, like I said, it, yeah, that, and that's a great analogy. It depends on which part of the, the elephant you're touching because the you're right, the job market is doing incredibly well and there continue to be help wanted signs, it seems like, in storefronts, especially in the service sector of the economy. And the in terms of mortgage banking, I'm sure, Mark, I mean, you, you've, you know, I think, People send me layoff notices all week long and, you know, either Robbie handles them or I handle them. And it, I, I tell people, you know, the headline news is actually any company that is hiring or any company that is not laying off in mortgage banking. It's certainly a, uh, a cyclical business and we're being reminded of that right now. But in terms of the U.S. economy, yeah, jobs and housing, jobs and housing. And right now, jobs are still doing well, despite some, some of these headline layoffs. Housing, you know, there continue to be these headlines about, you know, housing prices falling or housing price appreciation, you know, plummeting. And, and Mark, I don't know, I'm sure you watch the show regularly every Friday, but, we, I, you know, I try to remind people that to read past the headlines and just because housing price appreciation you know, is, is 20% a year for the last two years and now goes down to, you know, two or 3% a year. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. So uh, my, my two cents. Well, yeah, yeah, well, I agree. Things had to cool off, right? Because, you know, at the pace of house price growth, things were becoming completely unaffordable. And, they, and right now they are at these mortgage rates, 6% mortgage rates conflate with these high house prices and it's unaffordable for the you know the potential first time home buyer. I mean just to give you a statistic. If you're the uh, household making the median income which is about 70k a year and you're looking to buy the median priced home which is about 400k a year to say you put 20% down which would be a challenge for a lot of first time buyers but let's just say that their monthly mortgage payment is going to be almost $2000 and that's up from $1300 a year ago when mortgage rates were at record lows. That's a $700 per month increase in payment, that's just no one that's not happening. So first time home buyers are to the sideline. So we are starting to see some price weakness. And in yeah, I do expect we will see some price declines here, you know, uh, over the next uh, you know few quarters, really over the next couple of years as things adjust and affordability is you know, reestablished. So in that sense, you know, it, it was inevitable, right? Because you know housing was just becoming you know, out of reach for for many potential homeowners. Yeah, especially especially at the higher price points. I mean, you you would, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area, for example, or Manhattan, you'd hear some of these outlandish prices for small, you know, one bedroom or two bedroom units, uh, or you know, nice properties within driving distance of a metropolitan area that were, you know, just just flabbergasted. But I'm continuing to hear that, you know, in in certain areas, prices or housing. That's you know anything less than two or three four hundred thousand dollars is still flying off the shelf you know not staying on the market very long at all um, 
but yeah, certainly the multi-million dollar places are uh, languishing and, and definitely due for a correction. Oh, that's, is that right? I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not hearing that. Uh, I'm seeing, you know, uh, weakness across the board. I mean, home sales, new and existing. I, I think I don't think it's too strong to say they've collapsed. Uh, you know, if you look at the July home sales data, you know, we're back to where we were, kind of just coming out of the crash a little over a decade ago. You know, that's the first time home, home buyer that's evaporated. The trade up buyer is, you know, locked in because they have a mortgage at three and a half percent because they refi down and they're not going to be able to sell and buy at a 6% mortgage rate. And then you have all those investors, which were a big part of the market before things started to move south. You know, back in the second quarter, they accounted for about a fifth of all home sales. They've gone completely to the sidelines. Obviously, they're opportunistic and since prices are going to decline. So I don't, I don't know. I To me, this market feels like it's weak and it's going to get a lot weaker and house prices are going to fall pretty significantly here over the course of the next uh, year or two. This is there the run with Rob and Rich. And for those that just joined us, really pleased this week to have uh, Chief Economist for Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi with us, in addition to Rob Crisman and his son, Robbie. And uh, <clears throat> Mark, you also, um, you just wrote a piece. It was on getting back to the inflation piece, student uh, loan forgiveness. I, yeah. I comment on this show a couple of times. It, I just had questioned the timing of it because of inflation right now and the sensitivity of it getting worse and forgiving $10,000. I could t- like Robbie is an irresponsible millennial. I can tell you right now, if we forgive his student loan that he's going to immediately spend all of it. Um, but he, but you did a piece and said it would almost kind of be like a wash. If you could go into that a little further, because I read the piece, but it was, it made me feel better. And it was, it was a fascinating read. So if you could explain just a little bit, this legislation and its potential impact on inflation. Yeah, it's not a commentary on whether this is a good plan, a bad plan. I, all, all I was making the point was, if, you know, you can either a lot of people like it, some people really hate it, uh, but that shouldn't be based on you know whether it's going to add or uh, subtract from growth and inflation. And in that regard, the debt forgiveness part of the plan, all else being equal, would lift consumer spending, right? The borrowers don't have to pay that debt. As you say, that they're going to go out and spend more because they're just less indebted. That juices up growth and is inflationary all by itself. But uh, also part of the plan is uh, student loan borrowers who weren't paying because of the, on their debt, because of the moratorium that was put in place, you know, when the pandemic first hit, they now will have to start paying again at the start of next year, you know, if everything sticks to script. And that cuts into purchasing power, spending, economic growth, and inflation. And if you net those headwinds and tailwinds out, it's neither here nor there with regard to the economy and inflation, certainly not for 2023. There's a lot of effects longer run, some positive, some negative on the economy. But you know, in the near term, you, know, you, can, you can hate this thing, you can like this thing, but I don't think that revolves around what kind of impact it has on the broader macro economy. It's neither here nor there from that respect. So let's ask, let's ask Robbie, although he's been out of school for several years. Robbie, you, you, do, you have, do you have friends who talk about student loans, student loan forgiveness? What, if, if so, what, what do you think they might do about it? Or are they changing their spending because of it? I think it's a little taboo to talk about uh, unless you directly ask someone. You know, $10,000 is $10,000. And I do think it will goose the economy, especially with uh, millennial, 
millennials tending to spend irresponsibly like myself as rich loves to point out at every opportunity he gets um and then mark you also so let's stop going back to home value so and, yeah. and this is what we've been talking about in this show like at some point there's there's too much underlying demand to buy housing in america for a crash but let's just look at it ballpark using case shiller since the beginning of the pandemic roughly two and a half years Home prices on average nationally up about 40% in the last two and a half years. You look at history, you adjust it for everything you got adjusted for about 3% annually, historically correct to, to home value. So we we make 40% on home values the last two and a half years. You said that there's still weakness and, you know, like, you know, and we're not going to ballpark. Like, how do you see like the next year or so playing out with values of homes? going down uh you know like incrementally slow like we, i think we were down 0.8 percent from it was july to august i want to say that level of uh mm-hmm. declination or well, that's a pretty big decline right if you annualize that that's a 10 percent decline that yeah. that feels uh like like a the, it feels like the market kind of froze you know for a second for a month when prices, when mortgage rates jumped, you know, these big increases and everyone says, oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, this, maybe they'll come back, maybe mortgage rates will come back in. So everything kind of froze and we saw this big adjustment. So I, I suspect we're not going to see monthly price declines on that order of magnitude for very long. That would then quickly turn into a crash. And I, and I agree with you. I don't, there's good reasons to believe that's not going to happen. But if you told me national house prices are down, you know, from their peak in the second quarter, a couple of years from now at their bottom, somewhere between five and 10%. I say that sounds about right to me. That's nationwide. And that means, you know, some markets are going to be down double digit, particularly the ones that got most juiced in the boom times, you know, in the Southeast and in the Mountain West, because those are markets that are more unaffordable at these mortgage rates. And also those markets got, you know, juiced by, by investors. And in some of the markets, the more high flying markets, like a Phoenix or an Atlanta got uh, juiced by flippers. Flippers were starting to come back. And these are investors that you know come in with the intention of buying and selling very quickly to try to make a quick buck. And they, uh, they're they getting wrung out here pretty quickly. So in those markets, we'll see some significant double digit declines. But, but nationwide, I'd say 5%, 10%. One caveat, that's based on no recession. If there's no recession, if we don't lose jobs, if we go into recession because the rate hikes undermine the economy and you know the sentiment that we were talking about gets undermined and we go in, we go in and we have a higher unemployment, then I think, you know, price declines nationwide that are in the double digits, that seems perfectly reasonable to me, you know, something on that order like that, order of magnitude. Still not a crash in my nomenclature. I mean, for me, a crash is what happened back in 08, 09, 2010, all the way through 2011. And that's when national house prices fell 20 to 30%, depending on which index you use. The FHFA or the Case Shiller was 20% on the FHFA, it was you know 30%, 25, 30% based on the Case Shiller. Good stuff. Excellent. We're good. Having a lot of great questions come in the chat in the QA. We'll try to get to as many of these as we can. Um, Mark, first one question. If existing homeowners will not sell because of rates and builders are holding off on starts or completing work in progress, where is the flood of inventory going to come from to reverse the supply imbalance and drive down prices? Good question from Paul. Yeah, I, I think that's a reason why they don't crash. I don't think that's a reason why they don't fall in price. That just means fewer transactions. and But those transactions are going to transact at a lower price. 
So the actual measured price declines will show up. It's just, uh, you know, the, you're just going to see a lot fewer transactions. Uh, but that is, that is a good reason why we don't see, uh, you know, a, a collapse in pricing. You know, we have a proverbial, because given the low vacancy rate across the housing stock, you know, uh, the, the market is very tight from a physical perspective, both in the rental side of the market, but also in the, uh, the for, home, from, for home ownership side. I think that's a good reason to think that you know prices. There's a floor under prices. We're not going to go blow through it. The other the thing I'd point out is that you know gives me some solace that we're not going to see prices uh, crash. Is uh, mortgage underwriting has been very good since the financial crisis. You know, it's uh, if you look at the scores, they're all very high, and it's all plain vanilla thirty year, fifteen year mortgage. Nothing really wacko like a two year subprime arm or you know a negam loan. The things that kind of infected the market, you know, back in the housing bubble that exacerbated uh, problems uh, when uh, we got into the financial crisis and you you got a lot of foreclosure and distress sales and price declines kind of fed on each other. I just don't see that happening this go around. CoreLogic also reported this week mortgage fraud risk down seven and a half percent year over year to near its lowest levels in history. So yeah, to Mark's point, we're making good loans. We're underwriting loans responsibly. Fraud is uh, drastically been decreased, even in this kind of, I know there's not a ton of business, but it's a purchase only market typically where you see more of that. So how do they measure uh, that? Do you know? How do they, uh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. Do you know how they measure that? Yeah, it was in the second quarter of 22, an estimated 0.76 of all mortgage applications contained fraud. Oh, okay. uh, by comparison, it's down from last year. It doesn't say exactly you know, what the definition of fraud is, but CoreLogic, pretty massive provider and uh, data sure. warehouse. It's like, it's, like it's like the definition of pornography. I, don't, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, it's it probably <laughs> true. Yeah. They must have some algorithm though, right? Because they could. Yeah. I'm sure that they have some sort of uh, algorithm, but uh, um, some other questions that have uh, come in uh, related to the home builder uh, side of our business. Mark, what's the outlook for home builders and what part of the home builder uh, price index increase over the years is due to the GSEs and their subsidized access to the capital markets? Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't think it's about the GSEs. I don't think that's what's going on here. I, I mean, I, I do think we will see some weakness in single family construction, multifamily construction, no problem. I mean, there's a, so much demand, and with the a lack of affordability in the single family market, no first time home buyers, they're all going to be lot you know rent, renting. So I see you know significant multifamily demand in construction, and uh, we need a lot more supply on the single family side. There's going to be some adjustment, you know, some modest decline. We've already seen it in terms of housing, single family housing starts. That's because the builders are you know, a little bit panicked because sales have collapsed on the UM side and they're now discounting uh, pricing pretty aggressively, uh, kind of trying to figure out where the market is. But I, I do sense that, you know, we, as I said earlier, vacancy rates are very low uh, across the housing stock and for home ownership, they're at record lows. So I don't think we're going to see big declines in construction, uh, single family construction here. So if I kind of rank order, you know, when I think about the housing market, I think supply, demand, price, the thing that's going to get hit most is demand. That's sales or they're, they've, they've collapsed. Supply, you know, that should hold up reasonably well. Price somewhere in between, you know, they equilibrate the decline in supply and demand. Mark, what do you think the federal government, nobody's really talked about some way to incentivize home builders to build smaller homes. Here's this 
simplistic way I look at the world. There is not nearly enough housing supply. I I feel like the pandemic has, in general, made home ownership and where you live more important to people. Um, And you just have this dearth, like nothing. This is a problem that takes years to fix, even if you have the right solutions because of how long it takes to build homes. Nothing at all is being done like the simplistic way i look at the world is this is heading towards a major problem i'm I'm not heading we're there we got a major problem Uh, Mm -hmm. you can see it Uh, you know just take a look at rent growth i mean that's one of the reasons why we have such high inflation is because we have no no rental property no no homes so you know it's it's difficult for the federal government to enter in because a lot of these are you know zoning permitting those are local issues state and local issues not a, there's no easy entry point. But if I were king for the day, I'd focus on you know affordable rental, LIHTC, You know that's tried and true, and you know there's a lot of bipartisan support for that kind of approach. New market tax credits. You know there's a new neighborhood home tax credit for renovation that would help out in urban areas. And then if I had a little bit, you know, if I was king for the for a week or a month, then I'd probably focus on. There's where I go to the GSEs and I'd say, hey. Let's let's build out a secondary market for manufactured housing and in, in accessory dwelling units, ADUs. That's truly affordable single family. And the problem in those markets is there is no secondary market for those chattel loans that support manufactured housing. And uh, you know, there's no standardization. You know, that's what Fannie and Freddie did. They standardized the mortgage market and brought down costs for everybody, particularly middle low income households. And, that, and I think they should focus their attention on manufactured housing. And that's very very popular or at least historically, it's been very popular in the South and the West, and that's where the shortages of the housing are most pronounced. And then, you know, the obvious thing that really would help the broader economy and housing on the on every level is immigration. We need more immigrants coming into the country, skilled and unskilled. Uh, you know, that would be critical because a lot of the problems in the building trades is they can't get, they can't get workers, uh, particularly again in the South and the West where, you know, the demand is for this is the strongest. So that would go a long way, I think, the you know, helping the economy, it's labor supply issues, getting inflation down and directly benefiting the, the housing market and supply. It's a great point. And obviously, that's, uh, you know, Mark, we, we deal with a lot of lenders and the Mortgage Collaborative has a lot of lender members and non-QM has been a big topic. And when you talk about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, obviously standardizing a lot of lending policies and procedures and underwriting guidelines and, and really tapping into the secondary markets. I think the the industry has a very cautious eye, especially after First Guarantee and Sprout left the industry about the non-QM industry and the fact that um, in guidelines are not quite standardized. The secondary markets aren't quite standardized in terms of the production that gets issued. So you have a lot of lenders out there trying to address that by having, you know, more than just one outlet for a given loan. And sometimes that's a real hurdle for capital markets teams is trying to find two investors for the same loan that's underwritten on the same guidelines. This has the same criteria. Uh, It can be, it can be very difficult. And I think a lot of, like I said, a lot of lenders out there are very nervous about the non-QM segment of the industry for that reason. Yeah, well, by definition, the GSEs don't play in the non-QM space, right? Right. So, yeah, they're not going to standardize that market. That's a you know private market. You know, have at it. Um, you know, uh, the, the share of the market that's non-QM. I correct me if I'm wrong. It's probably about twenty-five percent ish. You know, something like that. 
lower? Is it lower than I thought it was like I thought it was five, five or ten. Oh wait, I, I mean, I should say the non-conform. You know, the non-government part of the market is twenty-five. You're right. The, oh, the actual non-QM is probably you know closer to five. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the rundown with Rob and Rich. I'm Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative, joined as always by Rob and Robbie Crisman. And this week, the chief economist from Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi. Mark, the uh, Rob, you have a question. I do have a question for Mark. So, so that's very polite. <laughs> well, so my question is: you you work for Moody's, and when you go back, and this is probably weren't expecting this question. You don't have to go answer ahead, far away. You know, no, no, go ahead. So, so coming out of the financial crisis, whatever you want to call it, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, the rating agencies were were mentioned obviously, in terms of being part of the problem. There was so much blame to go around, call it the borrowers, call it the brokers, call it the lenders, call it the investors, call it, you know, there there was plenty of blame to go around. But the rating agencies uh, were were dragged into that to some extent. Can you tell folks on the call here what the rating agency, and maybe you can just address Moody's, um, have done to uh, kind of write that, write the ship. If the ship was listing, indeed listing, if there were issues back then, what has happened with rating agencies to give capital markets investors greater comfort that uh, the rating agencies aren't aren't going down that path again? Yeah, if there, if there was a path that they went yeah. down. Yeah, and you should know, I you know, I had my own firm and I sold it to Moody's back right before the crisis hit a little over fifteen years ago. So. Uh, you know, I what, and I'm not part of the rating agency. Moody's Analytics is a separate, independent or, or uh, in, uh, uh, company within the Moody's umbrella, so we're separate from the rating agency. But having said that, uh, I think it's pretty clear that you know they got it wrong. The ratings were just dead wrong on the mortgage securities that were uh, issued, and that uh, did contribute to the you know problems that uh, that, that ultimately on on, on uh, happened. Investors took those ratings as gospel, didn't do their own due, due diligence in many, in many regards and, you know, paid a price. We all paid a price for that. Uh, but, you know, the biggest change between now and then was back then the rating agencies would take the information provided by the uh, securitizers, the investment banks and lenders uh, at face value. They did not do, they did not vet in any way the information, you know, the the income, the the uh, the uh, loan to value ratio, the uh, or the appraisal, the the credit score, it just came on a file, and they they took it as given, and you know uh, that obviously that going back to fraud, uh, there was a, a boatload of fraud going on at that point in time, and so by so doing, that fraud just was perpetuated, got the loans got originated, and they got securitized and got into the, into the marketplace. And that was a mistake, a huge mistake. But now, in the post-crisis era, with with financial regulatory reform, the agencies are required to do their own vetting. So they do, you know, I, I'm not precisely sure how they do it, but my my sense is they do randomized sample of loan files, and and you know, check to see you know that everything squares. Yet, of course, the other thing that makes this a lot easier th- these days is, uh, you know, the rating agencies really aren't rating very much. Uh, mortgage securities, right? Because the, as you pointed out, the the non-government part of the market, the non-GINI, the non-GSE part of the market is pretty small. 
and you know not, not getting securitized. So it's you know it's not nearly as important as it was back in the day. And I don't think that that the that securitization market's ever going to come back, at least not in my lifetime, because of the CRT market, the credit risk transfer market. So if I'm an investor globally and I want to take credit risk, I'm not going to take it through a secure you know a mortgage backed security a non-government backed MBS, I'm going to take it in some form of CRT, you know, uh, the risk transfers that are, that the MI companies are doing or private mortgage insurers are doing or the GSEs are doing, you know, that kind of thing. Some questions that have funneled into the chat and the Q&A. We've got about 10 minutes left with Mark, if anybody has any final questions. Uh, a couple intertwined questions, Mark, um, that just speak to really like August 1, we got some bad inflation data, rates shot up. It was already a bad year for the mortgage industry, but it, it led to this, the, in the question, a hopeless feeling. And uh, the question is, uh, Mark, can you give us your opinion of any light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, it's hard to see hope of things getting better. A similar question uh, about like rates, have they peaked yet in your opinion? If not, when? Any uh, crystal ball stuff for us uh, that's positive? If not, just lie. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty lugubrious. That's a pretty, uh, you know, pretty dark kind of question. Uh, okay, I can take the other side of that. Uh, you know, well, first let me say, so I'm not don't sound Pollyannish. You know, obviously we're in a very tricky time. You know, inflation's high. Fed's going to get that inflation. In. They have to push us in a recession to do that. They're going to do it. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is going to be uncomfortable. Under any scenario, it's going to be an uncomfortable 12, 18, maybe 24 months, you know, something like that. But but having said that, uh, let me point out uh, that uh, the underlying fundamentals of the economy are actually pretty good. Take the American consumer. I mean, yeah, low, uh, lots of jobs, low unemployment, lots of cash, you know, barring the folks at the very bottom of the income distribution that, you know, blown through the cash because of uh, the high inflation, you know, high middle income households, high income households, if you look at what they got in the checking account, it, it's pretty significant. Uh, and that goes back to sheltering in place and not spending. And of course, the government support for the middle income households. And that provides a nice cushion to, to navigate through. Debt is low. Leverage is low. Debt service is about as low as it's ever been in the data. Households have locked in, you know, these low, low rates through refinancing ways. The average coupon, I think I mentioned, on an outstanding mortgage is three and a half percent. That's 30 year, 15 years locked in. You know, stock prices are down, you know, 20%. Even I haven't looked today, but even you know, they're down 20%. But house prices year over year, you know, they've risen, you know, 15, 20%. They net out the you know, right now, people are as wealthy as they were a year ago. They're wealthier, much wealthier than they were three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So, you know, you add it all up, I think the American consumer, broadly speaking, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush and there's a lot of differences here across the income distribution, are, are in a pretty good shape. Uh, the financial system is in fantastic shape. There's capital everywhere, liquidity, underwriting has been very good. The real estate market, the housing market is undersupplied. You know, generally it's oversupplied. You got way too many vacant homes out there. You have, That's the opposite that we have right now. State and local governments are running flush with cash. Their rainy day funds across every state are full. They're as full as they've ever been. They got cash everywhere for lots of different reasons. I mean, the corporate sector, you I mean, take a look at their balance sheet. I mean, it, you know, their profit margins are extraordinary. They're coming in, but they're coming off record highs. And uh, you know they're investing and they're sitting uh, pretty. Their leverage is low. They've done a pretty good job locking in. There's some blemishes again. I'm painting with a broad brush, but you know, generally speaking, 
The only balance sheet in, in the economy that's got a problem is the federal government's, right? We borrowed a lot of money to help navigate through the pandemic and the financial crisis back a decade ago. But that's a problem, you know, that, you know, we're still the AAA credit on the planet. You know, our balance sheet, our federal government's balance sheet is stronger than anyone else's. So if there's a problem anywhere on the planet, money comes flowing in here. So, you know, it's a problem. It's going to be a problem we're going to face up to, but not in the near term. So bottom line, you know, our fundamentals are pretty darn good, which argue we don't go into recession. But if we do go into recession, it's a relatively mild recession. So I, I could I could give you more reasons for optimism, but, you know, hopefully that will tide you over until the next time we have a conversation. So, Mark, you raised an interesting point. I was <clears throat> talking to somebody recently about the, the stock market and uh, and housing and so forth. And, and this person who will remain nameless said something like, uh, you know, I don't I don't I don't have any I don't care what the stock market does. I don't have any stocks. And I said, so do you have a retirement plan? You have a 401k? Oh, yeah. I, I let somebody else manage that for me. But, you know, personally, I don't have any stocks. And I thought, OK, well, that's interesting. Um, but the I, I hearken back to uh, something my mom said about uh, housing and, and her, her the price of her house was going up significantly. And I, I'd say, Mom, you know, look at your, the price, your, look at your the value of your house. It's way up. And she said she would always say, what do you want me to do, Robert? When I was in trouble, you know, Robert, what do you want me to do, Robert? <laughs> sell it. You want me to sell? Where am I going to live, Robert? Where am I going to live? It doesn't matter to her. Her house was worth $25,000, which is what they paid for it in 1967. And it didn't matter what housing statistics were doing. She needed a place to live. And I think that's interesting. I think it's important for people to, to remember that stocks, you don't necessarily need stocks to live, but you do need a roof over your head. And whether you rent or whether you own, I think that that fact is lost somewhat in the in the mainstream press when they talk about housing prices and so forth and so on. I don't think people, you know, I'm not going to put you on the spot, Mark, but I'm not rushing out to sell my house because I think values are going to go down. I need a place to live. In fact, if you look at the, the, the folks on this call, I know that many have purchased properties in the last year or two and they need a place to live. So yeah, values might go down and stocks are going to do what they do, but housing you know, I'm not. I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit, but housing is is somewhat different because to, to so many people, it's a home. You know, it's not. It's a school district. It's a neighborhood. It's not so much a, a balance sheet item, even though it is. But you know, treat it treat it a little differently. And I think yeah. Lo- yeah. loan officers continue to see that, and they continue to play to that uh, sentimentality. Yeah, it's a, it's an investment, but it's uh, you consume it right every single day. Right. I mean, you got you, as you point out, you got to live somewhere. So, yeah, it is. It's an asset, uh, but it's a special asset because, you know, you need to you need to live somewhere for sure. You're absolutely right. Yep. Mark, you spoke to what you call the sheltering effect. I've seen you write about this as well. And, you know, essentially it was like during the pandemic, people stayed at home. They saved money. They didn't spend as much. Um, they were getting money for doing nothing from the government in different cases. And they, you know, and then, but so I'm a huge baseball fan. And like the way I look at this fed is almost like with the way people analyze baseball talent, you have stat people like advanced stat people. They don't need to be at the ballpark. They just want to look at the numbers. They can tell you everything you need to know. And there's the people that want to, you know, 
stand, sit in the stands and, and look at the break on a guy's curveball and how he interacts with other teammates. And this fed, it feels to me like was stat guys that, because I think there were some real world implications to this pandemic, all the sheltering stuff you mentioned that is now causing people to still spend money right into the face of inflation because they paid off debt. Maybe they saved more money. It feels to me like the Fed completely underestimated this with the whole transitory thing last fall. And then, you know, what they're until recently, they're not as aggressive as it should have been by their own admission action. Any relevance to that analysis, you think? Uh, you know, that's a common view. I mean, I, I take a more charitable view. I mean, my sense is that uh, the Fed got surprised, uh, reasonably so, by the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, the pandemic, if you go back to the spring, early summer of last year, President Biden gave a speech, I think it was the Freedom speech, Day speech, go enjoy your families on July 4th. He wasn't wearing a mask. People thought the pandemic was over. It wasn't. The Delta wave hit right away. And really was very disruptive to Asia, particularly uh, Southeast Asia, where, you know, we, the, all the supply chains begin China. And we saw, you know, uh, shortages and vehicle prices go skyward and building materials, supply uh, prices go skyward. Uh, and that was a surprise. It took, it took them by surprise. And the thing that was even more surprising and probably more damaging than I think people realize was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that caused oil prices that were going south, you know, all the way through Thanksgiving of last year, we were down to, you know, $60, $70 a barrel uh, to go skyward. And nothing is more pernicious in terms of overall inflation and more importantly, inflation expectations, which go to wages and, you know, all the issues we have right now, than higher oil prices. So those two things just, I think, were very serious. They're massive shocks to our economy, supply side shocks. And they were surprises and they got surprised. Uh, and so, you know, they got it wrong, uh, but they got it wrong for reasons that I, I, you know, I get. And, you know, I probably would have made a similar mistake. I mean, I, I do think, you know, there was some evidence earlier this year they should have gotten off the off the zero lower bound a little bit more quickly. But, you know, that's on the margin and they're catching up pretty quick, quickly. And at this point, I think they're managing policy well, you know, about as well as one could, you know, given the, the shocks that they're, they're grappling with. I mean, the Fed, they're like, they need people to stop working and stop spending. <laughs> like, it's its a weird dynamic right now. Like, that's what they need, right? I mean, they need. Yeah, yeah we need to slow down. Uh, we need the job market to slow down. And we need wage growth to moderate back to something that is more consistent with that 2% inflation target. So you're right. And, you know, that's the point of raising interest rates. So, uh, it, it, you know, they're in a very difficult spot because, you know, they're still dealing with these shocks uh, and the reverberations of those shocks that they have no control over. And thank goodness we didn't get hit by you know, the, the rail strike. That's another that would be another supply side shock. Right. So that's, again, completely out of their control. So they're grappling with some pretty significant issues at the same time, you know, with limited tools, interest rates. That's a very limited. You know, I've got many options here. You know, I can raise them you know, or how much do I raise them? How fast do I raise them? You know, over time, uh, in you know, uh, and uh, you know, trying to address issues that are you know just out of their control. So I, I'm you know maybe, uh, it's, maybe it's because they're a lot of the well, the chairman Powell's a lawyer. I was going to say because they're economists, I'm cutting them a break. But you know, I, I it's I just don't feel like they deserve the kind of criticism that they've been getting. 
Very fair and well said. Rob, Rob, any uh, last uh, follow-up comments, questions for Mark before we uh, take it into the weekend? Robbie? I want to know, Mark, you know, we started the show talking about FedEx stock price declining based on the CEO's comments. Yeah. In theory, when it comes to the the MBS market or equity markets, all future expectations are baked in at present. What's what sort of timeline is that though? Does that vary by asset class? You know, how how do how's it weighted from tomorrow? What could happen to a month from now, to a year from now, to three years from now? Well, uh, I, <laughs> I think that's an age old question. I mean, the market, the equity market, the bond market, the financial markets are discounting mechanism. It's you know, it, it, in theory, it embodies the expectations of investors going forward. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty. With regard to the future, so it's a you know distribution of possible outcomes that investors are attaching different probabilities to, but they discount it back to the current point in time, and they, but you know it's an imprecise uh, discounting mechanism, and often you know markets are, uh, and this is where they fail, you know they're they're not perfect, and they are subject to sentiment and speculation both on the downside and the upside, so markets can get out of whack, you know as we as we see. You know, markets get overvalued, they get undervalued. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a discounting mechanism, but a pr- imprecise one. And the timing, you know, um, it, you know, it varies uh, considerably. I mean, take the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that came on the radar screen in December of 21. That was starting to show up in, in global energy markets by December. You could see oil prices starting to move higher, but didn't even, seemingly didn't even get on the radar screen of equity or bond investors until, you know, well into February when, Russia actually invaded. So, you know, it's a it's a discounting mechanism, but I, you know, I wouldn't uh it's not a perfect discounting mechanism. It's it's imprecise and, you know, uh, uh the the timing of and how well it it does discount future information is, you know, uh varies considerably over time. A random walk down Wall Street. There you go. Good stuff and uh great way to take us into the weekend, Mark. Cannot tell you how much we appreciate you coming on the show. This was great. I just really, really appreciate your perspective and uh, uh, getting the chance to talk through this crazy economy and, and housing market. That well, uh, I want to thank all- you. And uh, I just uh, leave you with I, I strive to be 51% right. So, you know, uh, <laughs> take it, you know, take it for what it's worth. <laughs> Good stuff. And uh, once again, many thanks to Mark Zandi, Chief Economist, Moody's Analytics, for joining us on The Rundown with Robin Rich this week. And many thanks to all our attendees, uh, as always, uh, for joining us. We're every Friday live on Zoom, 3 p.m. Eastern with The Rundown with Robin Rich. You can also find us on YouTube or where most of you listen on podcasts. So, Rob, uh, enjoy the rest of your boat trip uh, and safe travels back to the continental U.S. When does that happen? Uh, well, I'm 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 a day ahead of all you people, so I already know what what happens for the rest of the day. Oh, who wins the but, baseball uh, game tonight? So I could bet on them then. <laughs> Sorry, you cut out there, Rich. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, traveling back across the day line, leave leave Tuesday night, arrive SFO. Tuesday afternoon. Uh, so I'm and I'm this weekend, Rich. I'm going to do my best to adhere to your advice and not work, and not spend money. There you I'll go. Continue, continue to eat rice and frozen chicken. Well, you know, Robbie will will pick up your spending, and uh, Robbie has to be noted. Uh, the Browns, Baker Mayfield, a little short. Uh, no pun intended against the uh, the Browns this week with his usual ten balls batted down. 
as a new Browns kicker sensation, Cade York, takes the Brownies to one and zero. So uh, I know you gave me some some Baker crap last week, so I had to I had to throw that in there. So, are you an Eagles fan, Mark? I'd say I'm a fair weather fan. Unfortunately, weather. if they're playing well, you know I'm all in. If they're not, I can't watch. So yeah, they're like the they're the sexy like uh, chick Super Bowl pick this year. In the I, I know I, I mean, yeah. it scares the heck out of me. So, you know that, that definitely is not going to happen now for sure. Yeah. <laughs> And that's the other thing I do. I set my bar very low, expectations very low, so it's easier to get over them. So I, I do have tickets for the Eagles, Packers right after Christmas Monday night Ooh. football. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm hoping you know that we have a good team. Are the Eagles fans going to boo Santa Claus again? Uh, as they're absolutely, are you kidding me? No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Rich, you should know the. Uh... The Fijian Marlins are supposed to sweep the uh, South Pacific Rugby League this year. <laughs> oh, they're good. Is there any sports in Fiji? What is it? A water polo? Oh, I he's, he's not rowing? What do they do out there? It's all about rugby, man. They're good, aren't they? Rugby. Rugby. And they're and 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 I've seen some of these rugby players, and they're they're they're, they're not tiny. Yeah, they're with, with mangled ears. Yeah. So all right, guys. see you later. All right, guys. Have yeah. a great weekend, everyone. We'll see you next Friday. Take care. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.